REA at it again. More about this and other stories on This Week in Retro. High resolution color graphics. This land of high technology. The revolution in technology that made the information age possible. Those kids are not afraid of computers. A credit card sized handheld. Gamers are all agog at EA. The computers that made Britain. And Ken sent me. All this in our community question of the week on This Week in Retro. Up-to-date news for out-of-date tech. And before we begin, I must say a big thank you to Amigo Aaron for sitting in last week. Hopefully we'll see him again on the show in the future at some point. Thank you very much, Aaron, for covering for me. Neil, it seems like each week we're covering a new handheld device, uh, from the Zelda Game & Watch unit that was just announced last week to covering the latest physical releases for the Evercade. It seems like the public just can't get enough of gaming on the go. I've got to say it's puzzling because, uh, let's be honest, we're all carrying around computers in our pockets that dwarf the processing power of these dedicated handheld units. Now, Neil, why do you think mobile phones haven't replaced portable gaming devices entirely at this point? Input, 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 input. Always comes down to the same thing, I think, John. I've tried all manner of virtual on-screen joypads, emulators on my Android, and there's no shortage of them. There's plenty that you can play with. Um, tablets as well. It's just not tactile enough to be an enjoyable experience. You you tend to load up the emulator, load up the game, and you say, this is cool. I'm running Earthworm Jim or Toe Jam and Earl or whatever on my phone. It looks great because the pixels are all squashed down, so the image looks amazing. And then you quickly learn to hate the experience (laughs) because you try to play it, and it just doesn't feel right without a joypad. Uh, Joypads are still with us after four decades, and, and there's a very good reason for that. Yeah, yeah, I agree with you. Well, if you're a fan of sticking yet another thing in your pocket, you might want to check out the Boy FX. Uh, now, this name might ring a bell if you've been following the portable scene for the past couple of years. Uh, the Boy originally launched as part of a Kickstarter campaign back in 2015, and it's most notable for its extremely tiny size. Uh, it's about as big as a credit card, and it's all a five millimeters thick. Uh, So picture an original Game Boy shrunk down to that size, and you get the idea of the layout. Uh, Luckily, it did swap the pea green screen of the Game Boy for a more civilized OLED display. Still monochrome, though. Uh, The unit gets its name from the Arduino board inside it, and its game library is entirely homegrown by enthusiasts within the community. Uh, Neil, do you recall hearing about this at all before? I do. I remember the Ardu Boy. Uh, if you take a look at it, your first impressions will probably be that, yeah, it's a nice, cute-looking handheld. It's small. It's borderline too small to be user- usable just looking at it, but I think it just scrapes in there. When you do see the images of someone holding it, you can see, okay, you've just got enough room for your thumb to use the D-pad and the button, so it just scrapes in. You wouldn't want anything smaller, right? I don't think. <laughs> I, don't, I don't see how you could. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. Um you say it's got the monochrome OLED display, which is super bright. So we're nowhere near the original Game Boy territory. This is a different level there. And it's open source, which is really nice. And when it was kickstarted in, it was in 2019, it was under $40 to back and get hold of one physically, which is super low price, very low cost, community driven. And um, lots of people got on board because this thing raised over $430,000 on Kickstarter. So this was a popular thing. The demand was such. Um, Yeah, so it it really did do well. 
Yeah, they, in the new Ardubois FX, you know, they don't want to fix what's not broken. Uh, it keeps the same form factor, still looks like a little tiny Game Boy, still has the 8-hour battery life just like the original. And looking at the documentation on the website, uh, it's really designed just as much for people to learn about coding games on the platform as it is about playing the games themselves, which I think is pretty admirable. Uh, the biggest improvement by far on the FX model is the addition of expanded flash storage. Now, the original Arduboy could only load one game at a time into memory. So you needed to connect the, the unit to the PC, to your PC, each time you wanted to play a new game. Uh, which is definitely a drag if you were planning on taking this on a long bus trip. Oh, yeah, yeah, definitely. You, I mean, you would have to defeat the old object of gaming portability by taking your laptop with you so you can put a game onto the Arduboy. It's, <laughs> it's crazy. It is. Now, I couldn't help but make the connection when I saw this pop up on the news feed with another upcoming handheld that's gotten a lot of press this is the the play date uh you know what i'm talking about this is a wacky yellow gimmick with the hand crank but it's got that same black and white screen now remember the ardu boy is the size of a credit card so the screen is only 128 by 64 pixels we're talking about a very very low res screen uh it's funny how between this and the really the re-release of the several quote unquote classic lcd titles that tiger electronics has released uh, people are getting nostalgic for gaming at a resolution that I never would have thought anybody would want to go back to. This this is nostalgia in every sense of the word. This is nostalgia where the rose-tinted glasses, they really are on for... Yeah. When it comes to Tiger Electronics games, definitely. They were the absolute <laughs> worst. Um, but, but even though I was always drawn to them because they often got the big-name licenses. They got Street Fighter and they got Mortal Kombat and there was OutRun and afterburner they got all of these licenses and as a kid you did sometimes buy into the hype and the idea that you might actually get a slice of those awesome arcade games for 10 or 15 pounds or even less but it was always 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 a recipe for disappointment john yeah yeah i, I had half a dozen of these uh throughout the years uh, in my youth and although i played them because they were of course better than nothing uh, once the Game Boy came on the scene, those all disappeared pretty quick. Uh, now, coming back to comparing modern low-res handhelds, one major difference between the Playdate and the Arduboy FX is the price. Uh, the Arduboy FX can be had for just 59 bucks, uh, which is pretty reasonable. I believe that the Playdate has just had a price increase, and it's hovering somewhere around 200 bucks. Uh, so uh, the, the, the Arduboy is much cheaper. Uh, there's a library on this thing of 200 plus plus games ready and waiting for your perusal. Um, I'm intrigued by the incredibly tiny size of this thing. Uh, so if you have one or you plan on ordering it, please leave us a note in the comments. A big thank don't, you to... Oh, sorry, I was going to say, don't make the, the whole LCD game comeback too popular. We don't want it so popular that Tiger start making these things again. That would be my worst nightmare. <laughs> Tiger, well, they they, well, they, they have re-released some of their classic titles, but oh, they can you imagine? Yeah, yeah. And uh, so who knows? Maybe they're going to start a new line based on, I don't know, the, the new Avengers movie or whatever. It's hard yeah. to say. But yeah, I mean, You uh, say they disappeared pretty quickly after the Game Boy, but I remember 
there were still things like Virtua Fighter Tiger devices oh, yeah. in the mid '90s. They did keep dripping them out. They um, disappeared from my pockets, but they yeah, Tiger Tiger continued on for it because it's hard to pass up that you know that ten to fifteen dollar price point when you see it in the store. And just like you said, you're like, well, maybe this is the one that turns it all around for Tiger. And of course, it never was. But a big thank you to subreddit member R Retro Hacking Mod Two for suggesting this story to us. So an interesting snippet of news that came by our way on the subreddit this week, with thanks to Dave Velociraptor, is the story that two games of quite historical significance are being removed from the website GOG, or Good Old Games. GOG has been a a really useful service for many old gamers who want to revisit games. Uh, Games that are no longer compatible with modern systems, so maybe they require an older version of Windows, even though they're PC games, they just don't run on Windows 10 or Windows 7 or whatever it is that you're running, or you need MS-DOS. And what they do is they package the game up in a way that can work with just one click. It might be that they've bundled it with DOSBox behind the scenes, however they've done it. They've just done it so it's nice and simple for the end user. Uh, And you don't have to worry about DRM or anything like that. So a really nice service. And the news this week is that everyone's favorite game publisher, EA, have asked GOG to remove Syndicate Plus. They've asked them to remove Syndicate Wars and also Ultima Underworld 1 and 2 from their website. Now, GOG is a legit site. Um, This isn't some kind of dirty pirate's lair. It's not like the... We used to have, and there probably still are, lots of abandonware sites where people would just put games for download just because they were 10, 15 years old, they considered them abandoned, but that was still legally, you know, completely unacceptable. GOG is all above board. Um, So this isn't because of a legal dispute or anything like that. It's just a change of mind from EA, or perhaps any agreement they had in place has expired. Whatever it is, EA don't want these games available on GOG. So the big question is, why, John? Any thoughts on why you think EA might be doing this? Well, obviously they're doing it so we can get our federally mandated one uh, mention of Ultima in uh, each episode (laughs) of This Week in Retro. But uh, apart from that, uh, you know, Neil, a wise man once told me that the answer to all of your questions is money. Uh, Something tells me EA is gearing up for a re-release of some of their classic IP, possibly with minimal improvements and maximum markup. Um, I'd look for a brand new Syndicate and uh, Ultima Underworld collection coming exclusively to the EA Play service or Origin or something like that at some point in the future. Yeah, well, the story is shared on the PC Gamer website. We can obviously only speculate at this time, but PC Gamer are suggesting that there's a possibility that they might be sold on the Origin gaming service. Uh, That's like EA's version of Steam. It's a service that I've not been a fan of since experienced it um, a good decade Going back a good mm-hmm. decade, John, I bought Codemasters Formula One. Um, oh, it must have been 2008, 2009. It was a long time back. I don't think Codemasters had had the license that long for Formula One at the time. And although this was a physical release, I had a boxed copy, I could only play the game if I was online. And that included the single player mode. It was incredibly frustrating because I had a terrible internet connection at the time. There were periods when I just couldn't play it even in single player mode because my internet was down i hated it hated it That's so awful. There, yeah. there began my long hatred of uh, origin not just ea it's on every level it's on every level john that they <laughs> annoy me um so yeah has the world changed yes the world's changed a huge amount in the last decade we've got much faster much more reliable internet connections and drm does have its place in making sure game studios are fairly paid but I really don't want to see retrospective DRM being added to old games, John. That, that would just be horrible. 
Yeah, well, that's that's definitely where we're heading. Um, I can't help but think that it is a little bit of karma coming back to bite us. All of the sales that publishers lost to pirates back in the 80s and 90s are being clawed back by these guys looking to lock everything possible down. Yeah, yeah. Um, the, the, the silver lining is that possibility that we might be getting something new. So we might get mm -hmm. a new syndicate, an ultimate underworld. We might get something like that from EA. Both franchises, I think, could be adapted really well in the modern day. Ultima Underworld, maybe in VR, that would work. Syndicate's never lost its Blade Runner-esque coolness. That's just as relevant today as it ever was in that real-time strategy um, style. So, uh, fingers crossed, maybe maybe something really good will come out of this. I don't know. We'll keep an eye on it, we'll keep an eye on the news. I really hope it's not going to be commonplace to see games removed from GOG like this, because... Uh, if publishers start wanting to shelve names just because they might someday do something to them, um, that would be a really bad precedent to set. So let yeah. them breathe, EA. Let those old games be celebrated. You'll likely find that if you do make a new game, you'll have fans old and new ready to take it up because they've experienced it through a service like good old games. So, um, yeah, let's not do this too much, please. Um, do you think EA listened to our show, John? Do you think we might be able to influence them? <laughs> oh, absolutely. I mean, <laughs> I think they play a weekly, you know, in their boardroom meetings. They've got the whole top-tier management team there gathered just to listen to our pearls of wisdom, Neil. I think you're right, John. I think you're right. <laughs> and this feels like a good time to share our thanks with our good friends, RetroRewind.ca. Now, I have a feeling, John, you may correct me if I'm wrong, but I think a few episodes back, for some reason, I mentioned that they're in California. They're not. RetroRewind.ca are based <laughs> in Canada, hence the .ca domain. I don't know how I got that confused, but they do indeed serve California and the UK and everywhere else in the world with their store full of Commodore goodies. Commodore 16, 64, 128, Amiga, RetroRewind.ca have everything from capacitor kits to diagnostic harnesses, IDE adapters to kickstart re relocators. If you can think of it, if you need it, they have it. And we'd both like to say thank you very much to RetroRewind.ca for supporting the show. Go and check out their store. Neil, we've definitely hashed out our respective computing histories more than a couple times on this show. But if I were to ask you what was the one computer that made you who you are today, what would you say? Oh, that's a tough one, isn't it? Um, I would go back to the very start. I would say Amstrad CPC 464. Um, very British micro not because it did much more than gaming for me you know I was too young to really get involved in anything more than gaming on that uh, but it got me completely hooked on computers computers weren't in every home at this stage um, they weren't in that many homes to be honest when I was growing up and along came this Amstrad it gave me ease of use in fact it gave my dad ease of use because he could go into a store and he could understand it and he could bring it home and set it up for me to use first time around you know, the Amstrad had one plug on it. It was that easy to power up, uh, uh, plug in and set up. So, um, yeah, it, it got in, came into our home. If it wasn't for that Amstrad, which I got completely addicted to, who knows? It might have been a guitar. It might have been painting. I might have found something else instead. You might but, not um, have wasted your life, Neil. I might not have wasted my entire <laughs> life, John. <laughs> Damn you, Amstrad. <laughs> but, um, yeah. I, it wasn't a given back then that you would grow up to become an adult with any exposure to computers or any computer skills whatsoever. In fact, it really surprised me when I first got into my first job how many people were computer illiterate. 
and um, then I, that's when I realized that I didn't have an unu super unusual upbringing, but I had a lucky upbringing in that I had access to computers from such a young age, and it all started with that Amstrad. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's it's tempting for me to go the retro route too and give the answer of my first computer, uh, my Atari 1200XL. But in reality, I think the computer I used the longest and that had the most impact on my life was actually much, much later. It was probably a G4 iBook from around 2003 or so. Um, I, brought, I bought it right after I graduated from college, right after I started working at an Apple store uh, as a part-time job to supplement my meager wages as a public school teacher. And uh, it was really the first computer that I fell in love with uh, and I used extensively for non-gaming stuff. Up until this point, I sort of used computers as just an extension of my console gaming habit. I mean, I, I typed papers on PCs growing up for school and stuff, but the iBook was the first first computer that I used to do stuff like edit video and create music and record my first podcasts on. So this was back when Apple first introduced the iLife suite of applications. And for somebody that never grew up with Photoshop or a video toaster on the Amiga or something like Pro Tools, having all of these applications come with the computer, for me anyway, uh, made the computer exactly what the marketing people at Apple said it would be, a digital creative hub. Mm-hmm. So were you a genius then when you worked at the Apple store? Were no, you, I was not job? a genius. I was a mere oh. specialist, Neil, a mere specialist. How does it work then? Is, is that top tier then, genius? Spe well, specialists, specialists work the floor. We're the, we're the salespeople and we do, ah. we do sort of the group trainings. Geniuses work behind the bar. That's how you know they're important. And uh, they, they're, they're the ones that do the one-on-one -on -one tech support. So Wow, the hierarchy of an Apple store. I mean, it's, yeah, it's, it's fierce. It's fierce. You think classism is bad as in Britain. It's not. It's not. You visit really? an Apple store now. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, talking about the creative uses of computers, um, it was around about 2000. I mean, I always dabbled I had, when I had the Amiga with things like ray tracing and 3D rendering and things like that. But it was around about the year 2000 that I got to start using Adobe products in earnest. Mm. Um, and it was because of those Apple computers that the graphic design department where I worked as an IT tech, they had apples. They insisted on having apples because up until then, that was the way you did it. Apple had Photoshop. It had, well, you could get it on the PC, but it just worked better on the Apple right. with those with those nice processors that they had, the G4s and whatever. Um, but at this point... Um, because I was supporting them, I was sent off on a course so that I could support them better. But for some reason, the management sent me on a course on how to use Photoshop and <laughs> Illustrator and Premiere as a graphic designer, mm. which is fine, which yeah. is fine. Um, you know, the more insights, the better. But it, it did help me to support it. But I really enjoyed that creative side of it. And I carried on learning those products for my own enjoyment, picking up more Premiere skills later skills that i use to this day so video editing making logos designing posters making the thumbnails that go from these youtube videos um yeah it, it was a really good experience i have to say though i did do that all on an hp workstation computer back then so i had i was doing it on windows trader um, it, yeah <laughs> so, sorry about that apple <laughs> well, the Amstrad and the iBook might have made us, but what about the bigger picture? What about the computers that made a nation, Neil? And not just any nation, your nation. 
The Computers <laughs> That Made Britain is the name of a new book just published by Raspberry Pi Press, and it's tackled the challenge of summing up the history of computing in your homeland, Neil, uh, going all the way back to the earliest days of the home computer. This book covers everything from the juggernauts like the ZX Spectrum and your beloved Amstrad CPC, but also the history of more obscure computers, such as the Research Machines 380Z and the ill-fated Sinclair QL, all with an eye on the people and places that created these remarkable machines. Now, Neil, you're an author of no small repute. Uh, would you give your <laughs> Would you give your seal of approval to this upstart publisher and their effort to chronicle Britain's computing history? I do, I do give it my seal of approval. Cool. But something funny, John, uh, that wasn't my first reaction. <laughs> my first reaction when I saw this released was, uh, "Oh crap." Uh, the reason being that I've been working behind the scenes with a little team on creating a book. Um, mm. We're not that far into it, but we are working on it. And um, it's a book that's based on a very similar <laughs> title, extremely similar working title. Uh, but having checked this out, it's a very different format to what we've been working on. So my fears quickly lifted. And you can never share these stories enough. Um, it's been really great seeing the story of British Micros escape from our shores over the last couple of decades and and be more recognized whether it's talking about the secret computers that we used for code breaking during the war mm -hmm. um you know it was decades and decades after the war that they became public knowledge by which right. time computer history had already been written about first this was the first um digital computer and this did this first and then all of a sudden it had to be rewritten because of the the stories from like bletchley park were, were declassified and things sure. like that so it's great to hear those stories. And then the, the micros in the 80s. We had such a homegrown micro industry here in the UK. Uh, very different timeline to what the US had with the Apple II and the IBM PC. We had all of these machines, Sinclair, Amstrad, Dragon, all of these machines that we had. Um, and it's just great to see these stories celebrated. You can't see that enough. So yes, absolutely. Seal of approval from me, the Computers That Made Britain is available right now for free in PDF, or you can make a donation to the Raspberry Pi Foundation if you choose. It's also available in print for £12 if you'd like the physical version. Uh, thanks to subreddit user Croc Cayman for suggesting this story. So John, just to round this week off, I wanted to follow up on a story we spoke about a few weeks back when it came to light that Ken Williams of Sierra fame was working on a new game. Now, this was big news, a titan in the gaming industry who gave us games like those in the Quest series, that was the, the point-and-click adventure games, and beyond. Sierra published games like The Incredible Machine, they gave us NASCAR Racing, A10 Tank Killer, loads and loads of games. It was a huge business, but of course it's most fondly remembered for those adventure games, I think it's fair to say. Well, just last week I had the honour of interviewing Ken Williams himself. I bagged an hour and a half with him. While he was in port, and I'm not exaggerating here, the, the interview ended with Roberta appearing and telling him it was time to leave the marina and set sail on the next leg uh, in their life sailing around the world. It's like it's like them and me have a mirror existence, Neil. I can't tell you how many times <laughs> after we get done recording this show, I set sail to my next port. Oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, I see the camera rocking slightly somewhere You're there on your yacht. Right. Oh, if only, if only. So, um, yeah, of course, of course, I took the opportunity to ask him about this new game. Oh, tell me more, Neil. I'm going to, I'm going to. Keep your hair on, John. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, uh, yeah, I mean, is, this is a difficult one. This is a difficult one because I got some info out of him, but he was also quite coy about what he was prepared to share. 
and I will release the full interview just as soon as it's edited up. But um, there is a website up now. It's called kensgame.com, and I love his domain choices. He also has kensbook.com for his book. <laughs> it works. Yeah, it works. sure. And the first page you'll see on this website is a vault door with the words top secret on it. And little information is given about the game there. So here's what I learned from chatting to him. First up, what they're pushing hard and up front is that it's a VR game. Uh, he didn't say if it could be played without a VR headset, but you know it was pushed really heavily that this is VR. And I should add at this stage that I was joined by a guy called Marcus, who uh, was very much Ken's hype man. He had the wraparound sunglasses on and everything. And he was really excited about the VR aspect of the game and how you would get fully immersed in this world. We also established that Unity is the underlying technology, the engine being used for this. And Ken compared Unity to... He actually said it reminded him of the old Sierra engine that he used for his game. So AGI, or the Adventure Game Interpreter, which was developed in-house at Sierra. He went so far as to say that if the development of AGI never ended and continued through to this day, then Unity is what it would have become. The, uh, you know, part of how I got into this was um, I started coding just for, uh, just to keep my coding skill current with a popular engine that is used for games called Unity. And then quickly I kind of saw that this is what like Sierra's SCI, our internal language would have been if it had kept evolving for another 20 years. And in fact, Roberta was just yelling at me the other day or giving me a hard time saying, she told me a hundred times when I sold Sierra, why didn't I hang on to uh, our development engine and keep enhancing it? And we'd have had a huge company today. And she's right, you know, Unity is a big company. It's supporting a lot of the games. And um, in some ways there's, you know, more, um, more money selling picks and shovels at a gold rush than there is, um, you know, digging for gold. So, um, yeah, I should have stayed in there. But I started messing with the Unity engine, and suddenly I realized that, um, in a way, SCI didn't go away. This is like a super evolved version of it, and there really is something that could be done that is worth playing by a fairly small team. And it's easy to look back and chuckle at that because Unity is huge. And yes, Sierra was big, but in the 80s, it was a different kind of big. It's nothing compared to the size of video game companies today. But through the 90s, this was a company turning over billions of dollars before its downfall. So, you know, you might chuckle, but actually it's perfectly possible that that could have happened if the money kept coming in uh, and they kept developing. Now, this is where it gets interesting. I established that Ken and Marcus... They are the team. That's it. Uh, Ken is doing all of the programming. Marcus is involved, I believe, in the artistic direction and some of the art assets and things like that. And he also engaged Ken originally. He, he says that he's the one that got Ken back into game development. And Roberta is set to come and work on the story uh, and add the meat to the game uh, a little later. But at this point, Ken is making the game using temporary assets to get everything in place. How big is the team that's working on this? Well, you're looking at it. Now, actually, there's one other okay. person yeah. who's doing yeah, the uh, rollover to uh, VR. But basically, I'm doing 99.9% okay. um, .9 of the code, and Marcus is doing all the art. That's really nice. So this really is a Ken Williams production. This isn't just you putting your name on something. You're fully involved in this. Oh, absolutely. With, um, yeah, when I can free up time to work on it. It... Um, it, it, it yeah, even without feature creep, we bought off uh, a, a big challenge. So we're... Um, That's for sure. Yeah, that, that's a um, definitely a full-time job, and then some. 
And is Roberta in any way involved in this project? Well, yes. Um, and we'll get more and more involved as we get deeper into the project. The, um, so she was the original inspiration. And at this point, I mean, there's really nothing to get involved with. There's a whole lot of code to write and a whole lot of art to do. And then we'll start getting something and she'll help us turn, um, turn something, um, well, turn this big monster into um, a game that's fun to play. Now, it, this is where it gets a bit odd. At this point, Marcus said something really interesting. We'd established that it's a VR game. We'd established that Ken was coding it. Um, we'd established that uh, this was all about immersion and, uh, and all of that, everything that comes with VR. But then Marcus mentioned that Ken's never put on a VR headset. Um, odd. Which kind odd. Of, <laughs> odd. Yeah, it kind of begs the question, how is Ken programming a VR game with no VR? Um, I know it's all possible to do this in Unity, and you can do it just on your monitor, and you can move around with your mouse. But there must be a certain amount of testing required in VR. Um, I, I feel like I nearly got more info out of them on the style of the game, either that or they were just toying with me. Uh, and having spoken to them, my instincts are that this is going to be a medieval-style game that nods to King's Quest. They don't have the rights to that name, so it can't actually be a King's Quest. But it would seem sensible to tap into that heritage of Ken's gaming background. And the website does say that it will be an adventure game. So we know that much. So I I'm guessing, in fact, I'd put money on it being a King's Quest style game. Okay. So how long has it been since Ken actually coded a game, Neil? Well, this is the thing. This is the thing. As Sierra got bigger and bigger in the 80s, Ken spent more time flying around the country, checking product, managing people, dealing with investors, everything, but sitting in a back room coding games. So for him on a boat with no VR helmet to take on this task, it does seem like a really big thing to ask in 2021. <laughs> how, right? how, how sure are you that the hype man isn't actually the brains behind this? <laughs> Ken is the figurehead. Who knows? Maybe Ken's just sailing around the world and it's the hype man that's working furiously. Maybe that's, that's right. why he had his wraparound shades on so he couldn't see his bloodshot eyes. Exactly. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. Um, I think what we're going to see is not a AAA title uh, in the old Sierra vein. Uh, I think it will be more like an indie project. Um, I hope, I really hope that Ken has got a hook, a mechanism in this game that's going to make us say, wow, why didn't they think of this before? I just can't see a small team creating an immersive reality of, it would have to be of the level of detail of a Skyrim or a similar game like that in this day and age. So I think it's going to have to be a st very, very stylistic or minimalist creation. Maybe this would make a lot of sense. Maybe it will be a pixel art style 2D adventure game uh, that somehow sucks you in with VR. Maybe it's that classic point and click adventure game um, perspective, but they've added stereoscopic views through using the vr helmet maybe you know traditional fixed camera position i don't know i'd be pretty cool with that if, if ken could come up with that and you could play a king's quest style game with a vr helmet in and you've just got depth mm -hmm. and a nice nostalgic pixel art style that would work but that's still not an easy thing if you're going to implement pixel art in vr it still takes a lot of artistic direction and effort um it goes way beyond just a guy being able to code it needs a lot more than that 
I don't know. John, those are my instincts. What are your instincts after what I've shared with you? Yeah, I just think that whenever you're coding in VR, you're you're introducing a whole different magnitude of challenges for somebody trying to code a game on their own or as part of a small team. Uh, I mean, I wish him the best, uh, and I, I hope he's able to achieve what he's after without having to cut too many corners to, to make the game VR-ready. But um, I'm not... I'm not fully optimistic that this thing is going to pan out in the way that, that he, he wants it to, unless he starts spending money to do things like, you know, product testing because VR, again, you're dealing with just the human brain being to not get sick when you're inside one of these experiences. <laughs> yeah. And I yeah. think that a big part of any game is just, you know, unleashing it upon testers and letting them experience the game and say, does this game make you physically ill or not? And uh, if you're doing that on your own, um, that's, that's a tall ask for sure. And how can you truly tell if the VR is making you sick or not if you're testing it on a boat? Oh, good point. <laughs> good point. <laughs> if indeed he does test it on a boat. I did sign up to become a beta tester on the website. You can click there. Uh, and when you sign up, I think it says we're looking for about 20 testers, which, again, doesn't seem like any amount at all. 20 people testing a new game. Mm -hmm. seems, seems like... Um, that would suggest it's going to be quite a simple game, but we'll yeah. see. We'll, well see how it the, pans you know, out. if you are selected as a as a beta tester, uh, you'll probably be put under NDA. So this will be the last time that we'll hear about this story <laughs> until it's released. But when it's all released, you can you can give us the full inside scoop on on what happened there, Neil. It is hoping. Watch this space. Um, yeah, I'm excited. I am dubious, as I've explained uh, about what we're going to get. But my goodness, if this comes to fruition, and I hope it does, and Ken stuns us with some, you know, something we've always wanted and didn't know we always wanted, then I'll be a very happy man. I should add that none of this has been kickstarted or crowdfunded or anything like that. Nobody's parted with any cash at this point. So nobody's really got anything to lose. So that, that's always a positive thing. Yeah. The full interview will be on my channel in the next couple of weeks, so look out for that. We'll get uh, an insight into Ken's history, a good hour of chat about his history before we get on to talking about the new game. And then uh, I'd love to hear your thoughts about what they say, and um, particularly about the hype man. He's a great hype man. You want him on your team. Neil, last week's community question of the week was, what would your dream retro computer museum contain? What a question. What a great question. Ooh. Um, and we got some great answers. So uh, we'll start things off here with Pajaco 6502. And this is something that uh, I'm sure that a, a lot of uh, British computer users will share. They, he says he wants a copy of Mayor from Ultimate Play the Game. He says, after all these years, I seriously doubt it ever existed, despite rumors saying it was complete and never released. But man, what a find that would be. Yeah, nice display, the game. Uh, maybe the design documents spread out around it in a nice glass case. That would be wonderful. Yeah. Yeah. Um, user I Got Zero Budget says, I feel like I'd want an Elite exhibit where all the systems Elite was ever released on are set up and playing the game accessible for the public to enjoy. You could kind of do something like that over at the cave, couldn't you, Neil? I mean, I wouldn't want it to be a permanent feature here, but sure. I could certainly have an Elite weekend or an Elite month where people could do that. Um, Elite was a wonderful game. Um, it made a huge impact at the time. But to uh, expect someone to pay for a ticket and come and spend a whole day playing nothing but the original Elite, I think it's a big ask. I don't know. <laughs> what do you think, John? <laughs> well, I mean, it would, uh, uh, you, you talk about an Elite month or an Elite weekend. I mean, it, this, this could be an Elite couple hours. <laughs> 
<laughs> you could yeah. set it up. You could have Elite running on all your computers, take a couple pictures, have a wonder about, look at how the differences are, and then just shut everything down and be like, well, that was fun. Um, but uh, it is, I always like to see the differences on games that are released on so many different platforms, you know, see the differences in performance, whether you're using polygons or wireframe graphics in the case of Elite. So uh, it would be a neat thing to see for, for a short period of time, for sure. As an idea, it's, yeah. it's mostly harmless. Yeah, yeah. And Croc Cayman finally says, uh, Ridge Racer full scale, an actual Mazda MX-5 car with a triple wide projected screen in front. This is a real thing. This is a real arcade cabinet. This is not a pipe dream. Oh, uh, I never got to see one in the wild. There is one up in Blackpool, I believe. But whenever I see pictures of it, the screens look incredibly faded. It doesn't look like you're going to get that full original experience. But yeah, this was a thing. It was a full-on Mazda MX-5 or whatever they call that car in Japan. I think it has a slightly different name. And uh, you could sit in it and you could play Ridge Racer. Yeah. yeah I'm not yeah. sure how I'd get it up the stairs if I wanted one, but I would love <laughs> maybe set a, it up in the car park. Cut a hole in the roof and have it craned in. That's, that's how you'd have yeah. to do it. You could easily create something similar with a projector and a nice sitting um you know chair and steering wheel and pedals mm -hmm. i think a lot of people would really enjoy that yeah yeah well neil you're building your own dream computer museum as we speak <laughs> so you'll be able to answer this question in full and in uh in just a couple of weeks when your museum is finally ready to go uh, a couple of months. Give me a couple of months. Okay. Pushing it with a couple of weeks, John. We'll get there. <laughs> All right. This week's community question of the week is: What computer made you? So, please post your responses in the subreddit, and we'll read the top three most upvoted responses on the air next week. This week in retro was presented by Neil from RMC and John Shawler. It was produced by me, Duncan Styles. The podcast version of the show is available through your favorite podcaster, including Apple Podcasts and Spotify. And the video version is available on the This Week in Retro YouTube channel. Join our community subreddit at r slash This Week in Retro to suggest and vote on stories we cover on the show. If you watch This Week in Retro on YouTube, please give us a like and subscribe to help us reach new viewers. If you'd like to support the show, please check out the links to our Patreon and Coffee pages in the show notes or in the YouTube description. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week for more up-to-date news for out-of-date tech. <laughs>